All right, so normally, you know, you would expect to hear the reading of the triumphal entry at Palm Sunday, right? But we read it here in the context of, of trying to hear Mark in terms of Mark evangelizing us to be followers of Jesus. So then we want to ask, I think, what do these three stories, the triumphal entry, the cursing of the fig tree, and the cleansing of the temple courts, what do they have to do with Mark evangelizing his readers into following Jesus into kingdom living? And as I've sat with, this, with that this week, of course, there's lots that could be said, but what I found myself going back to over and over again was the sense of God's initiative in all this, that it kind of feels like we're being pushed along or driven along or guided along by this unfolding story but we're not just kind of being pushed or driven by this unfolding story, but there's this telos that's pulling us. There's this end to which God is working and that that initiative is still active in this world. And that that initiative, the kind of insistence you see in the triumphal entry and in the cursing of the fig tree, which I'll explain in a moment, and the, and the cleansing of the temple, which again I'll explain in a moment, that this is all heading us towards a world in which the lion and the lamb lie down together. And it's that future that is meant to pull us today into patience and grace, forgiveness. I, I remember clearly the first time I had seen some Greek exegesis on uh, the Lord's Prayer, uh, the line that says, give us today our daily bread. The Greek text there says something more like this. Give us today the bread of tomorrow. That is to say, that world in which the lion and lamb lay down together, that world, like give us that bread today. Give us the daily things we need today to be caught up into this story. And I found myself realizing that I think we need this orientation, that our lives are not decontextualized, that they, they are in this driving and pulling story and for me this week, I, I felt led by the Spirit, I think, to, to spend some time in Henry Nowen's Wounded Healer, which, I've, of course, I've read many times, but just felt like, again, I wanted to sit with that book this week. And there's a passage in there that I think is helpful to us, at least it helps me think about why we need this orientation. For as Nowen says, we have elaborate and expensive ways to save the life of a person by something like a heart transplant. But we also experience the powerlessness of a world to help the thousands of people who die every day from a lack of food. We can travel to other planets, but we can't stop wars. We have the ingenuity that fuels our many inventions, but we must live with the earthquakes and floods and hurricanes and tornadoes, which destroy more in an hour than a human can build in a generation. And of course, people are confused by this. And they thus have a really hard time having any sort of consistent outlook on life. One of the things I love about being a part of an Alpha course, as we are now uh, here on Wednesday nights at Vanguard, is that you get to hear real human beings struggle with real questions like, is there anything up there? Like, is there anything out there? Or are we really just left to kind of fend for ourselves? And I want to say this morning that these three stories, the triumphal entry, the cursing of the fig tree, the cleansing of the temple, 
that these alert us to a reality that in the midst of all the noise pollution around us, that there is always already something going on. That there's a divine purpose in creation that God is insisting on. And I think it's that big idea that, that then helps us make sense of things like, what does it mean to be human? Like, what is being? Right? I mean, thank God this isn't a class on philosophy. It's Sunday morning worship. But what is being? What is meaning? What's purpose? Or what's desire? What's ambition? What's fulfillment? Like, to what end are those things attached? What's vision? What's values? You know, what, what really matters? What's relevant? I mean, relevance assumes a connection to something else. So to what? To what are we meant to be aligning ourselves? What's effectiveness? How do we know what to measure? What measurements really matter? What's authenticity? That's the kind of word you would hear on a college campus like this all the time. Trying to be authentic. Well, to what standard? What about morals and ethics? You know, where now is authority? What about a notion like conversion or faith or belief? You know, what do those things actually entail? In Tom Wright's brief little commentary on this passage, he writes, you know, thinking of the crowds at the triumphal entry, he writes saying, are we ready to go out of our way to honor Jesus? To be at his disposal even when it's confusing, like go steal someone's colt. Are we ready to spread our cloaks before him? Or have we so trivialized our Christian commitment and our devotion to Jesus himself that we look on him simply as someone to help us through the things we want to do anyway? Or someone to merely provide us with comforting religious experiences? And so for me, I found myself comforted in all the many faceted aspects of a human life and our national and global confusions to just constantly remind myself that there is a divine thing unfolding. But the backdrop against which we're trying to know that is increasingly fearful. And in our age, people especially fearing technological advancements. I mean, on the one hand, we're putting almost complete trust in these things. But on the other hand, there's this growing wondering that at net, when you net it all out, is it really helping the human cause? I mean, it's very easy these days to come to feel as if we're passive victims of a world being created by others for their profit. Most people I know walk around thinking that something is really wrong with the world, feels wrong personally, socially, politically. Kind of destruction on all those levels, including global, seems to constantly be in our face. So what many people are doing today, especially young people, the move they're making is this. If I conform myself to this world, I'm then betraying my own observations because it doesn't seem stable. So then they think, well, all that's left of me is to conform to myself. And I want to say, I'll just never forget reading these two words in one of James K. Smith's books. I don't remember which one. But to do that, Smith would say, is just to conform to my habituated autonomy. 
I often say we could take those two words and go on a three-day retreat. Just those two words. My two words, habituated autonomy. That kind of false God that lives within me, often making us a prisoner to our own existence. Are you feeling me here? Divine initiative. Superintending all of history and the present cosmos. We can live into that or we make this move into ourself because it feels authentic. It feels like, well, nothing else around me seems stable or real, but I seem stable. I, like, I'm real. I know I exist. I know what I think and I feel. So maybe that's the move I make. I get how people do that. I sincerely get it and have complete empathy. But what makes me sad is I know where that story goes. I know the telos of that story. I know the completion of that story. And it is to be trapped in our own then habituated autonomy, becoming a prisoner of our own existence. So then especially what a lot of young people do is they think, okay, I'll make a slightly different move. It'll be my peers. That's where I'll get a sense of meaning and being and what to measure, what's real, what matters. But then again, I've talked to so many young people who say, but wait a minute, that doesn't really work either because my peers are just as unhappy and restless and confused and alienated and cynical as me. But I bring us back to the notion that I think is so core to these three stories. That God didn't just triumphantly enter into Jerusalem once, but I want us to hold on to this notion that God is always triumphantly entering the human condition. Entering with creative action that gives hope and promise. It gives us an actual framework, a frame of reference. It can give us a coherent worldview, which then I think in turn makes possible the healing of our fragmented lives and the calming of our constant feeling of anxious urgency a notion that God is always entering my life and the whole cosmos has the capacity to still our fears and confusion regarding suffering and can give hope to our pessimism. And I think what these two brief stories tell us, the cursing of the fig tree, we didn't read that verse this morning, but in, in verse 20, uh, Peter calls it that Jesus cursed the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple. Well, again, what I see in this is divine insistence Right? The, the cursing of the fig tree is just a dramatic, acted-out parable where Jesus is using as a teaching device to say and to demonstrate to his hearers that the Israel of his day was not bearing the fruit that God intended. That's all that's going on in that acted-out parable. And in the cleansing of the temple, unfortunately, often the focus is on the kind of stunning outlier of Jesus' anger, right? But again, that's not the point. The text says that he taught them as he was cleansing the temple, he taught them that my house is to be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's the divine insistence or purpose. And then comes the but, the contrast. But you've made it into a den of robbers. That's the kind of disobedience. And what this passage, I think, what Mark is doing to us, Mark the evangelist, is saying that God is doing something. And the two parables, so that's the entry. The two parables teach us that He's insistent on this, that this is, this is good, this is right. This is attached to divine purpose. 
And this, I think, is where we get this large human answer. And we get the courage to express a self that's rooted in the followership of Jesus that Mark is calling for. So again, I think it takes us back to the notion that there's a story unfolding. It has a purposeful beginning. It has an assured outcome. And as I sat with this this week, I realized that in the letter I read to you last week, I said that I had confidence in Jesus's leadership of the church. Well, you know, that would sound like something in my position somebody should say, right? But as I sat with it, I realized how very much I meant that. I mean, I knew I meant it when I wrote it, but as I sat with this 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 week, I realized, yeah, I actually do believe that. I actually think that God is superintending human history and that that includes me and that that includes you and that includes us and it includes his whole church and his whole created world. So last week as I stood here, I, you know, I sort of stood in a, an official capacity, you know, trying not to dissolve into a puddle of tears. This morning I can be a little more personal and to say to you that this decision, Debbie and I, for, for us, this decision for me to retire was literally the hardest decision of my ministry life. As I go back and look at my journals, I was talking to my spiritual director about this more than two years ago. And just wondering, what was the last era of my life meant to be like? What was it meant to be for? And I struggled against having this sort of national ministry. Frankly, I'm just a little tired and tired of airplanes and smelly hotel rooms and rental cars. You know, if you've ever lived like me, you know it's, there's nothing sexy about it anymore. It's a grind. And I think also, I would just say to you, because I've, I've tried to help us many times try to come to a grip with ourself in the image of God, I think looking back now, it was a big challenge for me to let go of a 40-year sense of myself. I mean, since I was 19, I've thought of myself as a pastor. And letting go of that, like that image of myself, my sense of myself, I think was way harder than I thought it was gonna be. And to kind of invent a new self where I can be a servant leader in another way to another sort of era, I think was a very, very difficult thing for me. But the comfort and assurance I have for all of us is, is from these stories that we're not abandoned and that we're assured of this by God's self-disclosure in an enfolding story that has sway over even donkeys. And it has sway over the owner of donkeys. And that it's rooted in the creation of, of the people of God and kind of his unending corrective judgment. You know, what, what I see in the, in the cursing of the fig tree and in the cleansing of the temple is something like this. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort you're not gonna let this go off track. You're gonna insist that this really happens. So it's true that I have a lot of experience and that I've been planting churches for 40 years. And I have planted and released a lot of successful churches over my life. But while I'm happy to give you that experience, that's not the core of my confidence. The core of my confidence is that Holy Trinity stands in this divine story. And I have confidence that you want to stand in this story and that you're mature enough to know that stories have chapters and that stories have eras 
and that these chapters always, because of divine insistence, lead to the fulfillment of God. So one last thing on this topic. In terms of process, I want you to know that you will be included in my work with the church council in kind of inventing our future under God. And I want to say that this is your church and that Debbie and I were just founders and we're aware of that. And that Beth and I were just servants of the the vision of rest and reflect and redirect. We were servants of the values of quiet and thoughtful and beauty. So I know because I know us that you intuitively know that I've always done my best for you. And I just wanna say you'll continue to have my best But now in this very important work over the next few months of working with the church council to find us a really great new pastor who can give this church their full time, their full heart, their full mind, not be distracted in the ways that I've been, but one who is as committed. This is my core commitment to you. I will do everything I can as your bishop. And you do know, by the way, I will continue to be your bishop. (laughs) And I will continue to be here occasionally. But you, my most core commitment to you is to find somebody who's every bit as committed to the journey inward of spiritual transformation into Christ-likeness and the journey outward that others would experience our lives as for their good, we will find somebody like that. You, you have my best promise towards that. Amen?